Welcome back, everybody, to another edition here of Inside the Winner's Circle on the Win Life Podcast with Awilda Rivera. I am super excited because I have Mr. Lodro Rinsler here with me today. You may know him from one of his six books, starting with the best-selling Buddha Walked Into a Bar, and most recently culminating with his book, Love Hurts. He is the creator and founder of Mindful, a meditation studio based in New York City, which has since expanded to provide corporate support, programming, teacher training to bring other meditation teachers out into the world. And I mean, aside from just being an expert of all things mindfulness, I can tell you that one of the things that I've known about uh, Lodro since the time way back when, when I first met him, was that there was something quite special about this young man. There's something different and connected about him. So Lodro, thank you so much for being here today. My absolute pleasure. It's such an honor to be here. Well, you know, tell us, tell the listeners, you know, they may have had the misfortune of not coming across you prior to today. Tell them a little bit about yourself and a little bit about your journey that brought you to make the work of mindfulness and bringing that to the, the public, your, your passion and your purpose. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I'm in a, <clears throat> a bit of a weird position just in that, you know, as Buddhism started to really make headway here in the West, um, particularly in the 70s, it found my parents and my parents found it. And by the time I came around in 82, they were already sort of deep meditation practitioners and it was just in the household. So, you know, I'm in the unique situation of being sort of second generation Western Buddhist. Um, and I started meditating when I was all of six years old and went on like weekend retreats when I was 11 and continued on to the point that um, shortly before college, I ended up doing like a summer as a monastic, which is not unheard of in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition that you sort of take temporary ordination just to try it out. Um, and then when we were at university together, I was actually asked to start teaching meditation. So I was 18 years old, uh, I'm 36 now. So it's literally half my life that I've spent um, trying to make these very valuable practices of mindfulness and loving kindness and compassion practices more accessible to people. So um, as you mentioned, you know, that sparked books, it sparked uh, Mindful, which is a network of meditation studios across New York City, uh, sparked online programs, there's lots of different ways that this is manifested and continues to manifest. I feel like it's always an evolving question, how do we actually take the stuff that we really love and make it more and more accessible to people, um, invite more people into the helpful things that we're trying to do. So for me, it's always been sort of part of my life's blood, but I would say particularly, you know, when I entered my early 20s, it became something that I was like, no, this is this is really the work that I want to do. So as you talked about the purpose that I'd like to pursue. Yeah. And I mean, honestly, I wish that the audience and you could see me, I got so much goosebumps when you were talking because, I mean, I don't think that people are really aware of what a gem we have in you in the fact that to be second generation Western Buddhist is a very rare thing. And then also to be a person, you know, who is of Caucasian descent. Would you say that about yourself, yeah. Lodra? I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so to be someone that's almost like majority, but then taking such a loving kindness, compassionate approach in very, if we want to use a political term, realist 
times of war and and capital, you know, capitalist nature. How did you, you know, because even though you were raised in it, right, the world you were in wasn't so much a world of other Buddhists, right, outside of, of the home and of your your temple and stuff. So what was it like when you were 20 and you were like, okay, I'm going to actually do this for work? Like, were people, did people get that? Was it hard? Was it easy? Like, what, what was that when you're like, listen, this is my passion and I'm going to follow it? Yeah, it's a great question. I always joke that, you know, when I was a kid, um, you know, meditation at that point was still very weird. It's probably not the only re- reason I was pushed into lockers growing up, but like it didn't help that I meditated. Um, and now it's become so much more mainstream. So even back, you know, 22 years old, 14 years ago, it was still somewhat um, unusual for someone to pursue meditation. And certainly, you know, when we were at university together, my father thought, You're, what, what are you doing getting a religious studies degree? This makes no sense. No one's ever going to be interested in that. Um, but I would say in recent years, um, it's become this sort of mainstream trend, which is bizarre to me. I, you might as well, you know, predicted that X-Men comic books were going to become popular and people would pay me to for all my expert knowledge about it. Like it's really <laughs> bizarre to me, but it's good because I mean, it's like now all this science and research has come out for the stuff that, you know, you and I have known for a long time, which is that meditation is good for you. If you actually do a little bit of it regularly, um, it actually starts to increase gray matter in the hippocampus in the brain. It actually starts to uh, generate more activity in the ACC, which means that we're more productive, we're more efficient, we're more patient. It actually starts to uh, normalize our sleep patterns and boost our immune system. Of course, it's known for stress reduction, which is like the number one thing, right? Everyone mm-hmm. wants to have less stress. So uh, to answer your question more directly, you know, for me personally, there was this sense of like loneliness in my early 20s of um, not necessarily feeling like there was a big community of people that want to talk about this, but still feeling so passionate that it had helped me to such an extent that I wanted to just try to make it more accessible to others. Mm. So now that you've kind of set the stage, right, you're, you've, you've painted quite a vivid picture that, you know, anyone that was alive that long ago, which they probably are, they're listening to the show, um, can remember that, you know, during the early 2000s was a time when we were still coming out of the 90s. It was still a lot of like excess and bigger is better and more and shinier. And the fact that, you know, you had the wherewithal to continue to follow this internal calling, really. Um, And that, you know, you said it yourself, you're like, listen, it was people kind of knew more what it was. Yoga wasn't maybe so out there. It was still weird, but it wasn't like, oh, my God, like when your parents were doing it. But now you had the, the, the challenge of turning that into a business. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's one thing to be a monk, right, or to just be a, devo- a devotee, right, who is living their life in this way and being a living example and, and having bodhicitta, which means awakened heart for people that are like, what the heck does that mean? Um, and sort of walking that, that, that path of bodhisattva, of being an awakened spirit. But now to make that into a business. Tell us a little bit about what that experience was like, because, you know, you're living in this this 20th, 21st century world. So you still got to eat. You know, you still got to pay your bills. What was that like? Yeah, it's a good question. I, it's an ongoing conversation that I'm having with myself. And also, you know, at Mindful, we have a teacher training and that's an ongoing conversation that we have. 
uh, even last night I was having it like, there's so many different models of how do we make the teachings accessible? And for a number of years in, you know, right out of school, I was running Buddhist nonprofits and that was perfectly lovely. And we never had enough money and everything was held together by duct tape and we could never <laughs> market ourselves or you know, like it just, the whole thing felt a little um, trepidatious. And in any given moment, you know, unless some major donor came through, we would have to close our doors. And it just honestly, after many years of working in that model, even serving as an international development director for, you know, an international network of Buddhist centers, it became very apparent to me, like, this isn't actually the best way to serve people. Mm-hmm. It's not sustainable. It's not sustainable. And I mean, if we look back to the time of the Buddha 2,600 years ago, that worked then, you know, it's like we had a model where people said, oh, like, I, I'm going to like support the, um, I'm going to support the monastics in the area. I'm going to support the local monastery. And it's just sort of baked into the culture that that is what you do with part of your income. Um, so it's not like the Buddha just sort of lived out there um, and everything was hunky-dory. Like he had major patrons that would give large swaths of land. Yeah, like kings and rajas and all that type of stuff. All of that stuff. So it's an interesting thing where it's like we sort of perhaps naively, maybe in the West, we're like, yeah, let's just have this all be based on donations. Um, and I think there is a room for donations, particularly as like private meditation teachers, you know, like. I th- that's basically how I run my, my personal practice. Like if I'm working one-on-one with meditation students, it's just sort of like suggested, like if you want to, what's the offering you want to make. Um, but in terms of a large scale business and keeping doors open and paying rent in New York city, exactly, um, it's really hard to do like a donation model. So for example, with mindful, what we decided to do is say, okay, we're going to create a, people can come and meditate and take our classes for $10 and if they want to do an unlimited membership, it's $75. So it's still sort of like relatively accessible pricing, but we're also going to do stuff where we donate um, the space to social justice groups. We're going to hold classes for free a couple times every month so that people still have access to this. Um, and we're sort of playing this interesting balance of like, okay, what if we swim in the waters that of capitalism that we find ourselves surrounded in? That, what if we actually charged a set rate for people to come, but ultimately um, that allowed us to really offer beautiful services to pay our teachers well, which is actually unheard of in um, most of the meditation situations that we find ourselves in. You know, I used to be able, I used to teach uh, like a six or eight week class and, you know, pour about just doing the math in my head, maybe 20 hours into that and you know essentially be paid eight something an hour um like to actually say no we're going to pay our teachers well we're going to try and support these people who are wisdom holders it's an interesting experiment um and we're trying to balance it again not just with uh you know offering our services for free on a regular basis but we also have a non-profit arm called mindful ed where we actually bring meditation into underserved communities around the city. so i mean so, so it's like we actually are feeding so that. much yeah. and i really want the listeners to to kind of key in on a couple things that you said because i always i never want people to say well i'm not into meditation or i'm not an entrepreneur so i you know what lodro is saying doesn't apply to me what lodro is saying is universal because lodro didn't he didn't say at any time well you know i i decided i was gonna 
make money off of meditation. So I decided to just entrepreneur. No, he said, listen, we have to be practical. He allowed himself to be flexible and say, listen, what is what do I actually need living as a human being, right, in 2019, 2018, whatever, to pay bills, to eat? How can I still be true to my mission, which is bringing these teachings and making these teachings accessible to others while also not being so adverse to the other, which is the capitalism, that I can dabble in it to my benefit. Yeah. You know, that's powerful yeah, stuff. Yeah, thank you. That's a nice That's way of powerful it. stuff. Yeah. There are, there's someone listening right now, you know, who's, who wants to venture into art or who wants to, to try something and is so either freaked out by it or put off by what it may require or doesn't feel like they are actually what is what it is that someone would look at or think or define as that thing that they don't take any steps. But when we listen to your story, it's almost like a parable in the sense that it's like, I had this passion. I always was just living it. Then I realized I wanted to pursue it. And then I had to not be rigid because that's often the hardest part of saying, this is my vision. And how can I allow my vision to be malleable enough so that I can actually make it happen? Yeah. I mean, much better put than I I put it. Thank you for doing that. Um, Yeah. It's an interesting situation. And I think part of it is the fact like, as you well know, what's the intention behind this? And you just sort of hit on that. Like the intention for mindful, for example, is not for everyone to go out and make a bazillion dollars. That hasn't happened. Um, It's like our intention is to reach a lot of people. And that has happened. We've had over 150,000 cushions booked. That's crazy amount of like people coming to a space. Um, we've had people come over 500 times in the few years we've been around. That's phenomenal. And it's like, this is their home. This is their community. Thankfully, it's an incredibly diverse community and many forms of that word. And it's because it's like, there's an underlying understanding that this is not, even though it's like legally listed as a for-profit model, it's not a, no one's trying to get rich off of this. We're all actually just trying to provide a service. And we're trying to, as you said, be practical about how we provide the service. Mm -hmm. So now, now that you're in this next phase, right? Because you've done mindful, you've written so many books and what, you know, what I want to highlight about your books and that has been sort of wide, uh, widely stated in many reviews about many of your books is the sort of accessibility with which you write about this topic. So there are so many books, of course, you know, anyone can go out and buy a book by the Dalai Lama or by Pema Chodron or Tichat Nan, all who I love and respect and admire. And they may or may not find that relatable. It's something else to go and be able to get a book from your contemporary, right? Someone who's under 40 years old, who gets you in a different way and is writing in a very like, hey man, Think about it this way, you know, can you speak a little bit to as an author, you know, some of the the authenticity or the voice that you're coming to these projects with? Yeah, it's a great question. It actually harkens back to what we were talking about a few minutes ago in that moment of like loneliness in my 20s and being like, I don't know if anyone out there is thinking about these things like I am. You know, I actually picked up a book by Pema Children at that time. And in it, she was talking about um her going through a divorce and the heartbreak that that entailed. And I had been going through my own breakup, but it was different because I never had a divorce. So 
I was like, who's going, who's talking about that first major like breakup in your twenties? Like who's having that conversation? Cause this feels directed to a little, someone a little bit older than me. Um, and that's actually what gave birth to the Buddha walks into a bar. It was like, I couldn't find anyone having that conversation. So I tried to start it of just like, how do we actually apply these teachings to the rest of our life? And particularly, you know, while I would say that there is, I don't want to necessarily use the term target audience, but there is an audience in their twenties and thirties that are sort of going through a similar common experience. Those books have become, get written, um, I get a lot of emails from people in their 40s, 50s, 60s being like, this is still relevant to me because it's more about how do we apply mindfulness and loving kindness and other compassion practices to our daily life? Like we have this term meditation practice it's implied in that is that we're practicing for something. And if we're not practicing for trying to be more awake in the rest of our life, then what's the point of it? Oh, so true and so important. It's something that you touched on. I want to kind of dig a little deeper into because this is you know, people may say, oh, yeah, well, that's so great. You know, if they're still missing it, you know, at 17 minutes in, they'd be like, oh, it's so good. He has like a studio where I could go and like be calm and then leave and whatever. And what you're saying is so important. The meditation practice, the awareness, the alertness, the the really what we're talking about in a bigger scheme of things. If, if you're if you're a listener who's like, oh, I don't know, Buddhism, that's another religion and I'm a Christian, whatever. Right. You know, if that's freaking you out, think about it more in the sense of being prepared to handle anything. And what Lodro's really hitting on right now is the idea that these practices, right, what we're doing when we're coming to be more awake is being prepared for anything. So being able to go into the traffic or into the rush hour in the New York City train system or into a crowded supermarket where people are completely checked out and not let their energy, their behavior, their you know, restlessness, string your guitar in a, in a way that just disrupts your whole spirit. Yeah, I love that because, you know, you're hitting on this point, which is like, we live in a really speedy and aggressive society. Um, and it's overwhelming for a lot of people. Like, I, you can't go to the gym without being surrounded by televisions and each one of them is telling you about a new natural disaster, <laughs> political travesty, you know, racist agenda, whatever it is. Like, that's the world we're living in. I don't know about anyone else, but it feels more intense to me now than it did a few years ago. Um, so to have tools in our tool belt, as you said, regardless of religious background, um, that helps us navigate that. I think. It's yeah. So and I mean, I think one of the more important things about and I want to separate meditation from Buddhism for a second, because I think sometimes sure. it ahead. gets very lumped in, you know, and I know that's not your message. And so for people listening, I just I want them to take it this way. We've heard about prayer, right? Or when you talk to the universe or to your God or to whoever, whatever energy is bigger than you, right? Meditation is when you listen. You know, and I didn't, I'm not going to take credit for that. I didn't make that up. But I heard that somewhere and it really resonated with me. And the great thing about what mindful does is it teaches you 
how to meditate in a bunch of different ways. So there is the sitting meditation, which, you know, we're familiar with, we know about. There's the chanting meditation or the guided meditation that can also be sitting. But there are walking meditations. There's the ability to meditate when you eat a tangerine. There's the ability to meditate when you're washing dishes or when you're, you know, just listening can be a meditation. And these are the things that are have nothing to do with religion that allow you to be more present, right? And be more tuned in to just your environment, to the person that you're with, to the nature around you, to the, the potential joy that can be found in even the darkest circumstance, or at least that has been my experience, Lojo. Would you concur, expand? What, what would you say about that? Oh, 100%. Yeah. And I, I mean, you gave very specific, concrete examples too, which I love. You know, that people say one of the big obstacles is like, I don't have time to meditate, right? That's a very common one. But I think we all have time to just take a few conscious breaths a day to actually mindfully sip our coffee when we're having our morning coffee to enjoy the feel of the shower on our skin. Like mindfulness is actually the act of paying full attention to what is currently occurring without judgment. So there is some element of like, wow, in any moment we have the opportunity to be mindful. And then meditation practice, particularly mindfulness meditation, prepares us to do that more and more in our life. Mm Mm-hmm. So let's say people are like, okay, well, sounds great, Lojo. You've been doing it since you were six. You're probably like so easy for you. Can you speak to that? Like, what does your practice look like? Do you ever struggle with your practice? Are you ever resistant? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, 100%. Sorry, I I didn't mean to cut you off. I'm so enthusiastic (laughs) about this. Um, Yeah, of course. I've never found, you know, someone who is a regular practitioner who's just like, I'm always mindful, <laughs> 100%. Like the people that I like, that I'm like, ah, you know, I bet you're, you know, when you get into traffic, you <laughs> yell at people. Um, you know, like this, I think there's something about this practice that reveals to us that we are two things. One, inherently whole, complete, good as is. And two, that sometimes we're a little mm-hmm. messy. Um, you know, we make mistakes and like we learn from them. And I think this is just about evolving more as a human being than trying to become mm. something perfect. Yeah, I mean, I hope that uh, guys, if you're li- whoever's listening to this podcast, listen to what you just said. It's more about evolving than trying to become something perfect. I mean, there's so, so we could spend a whole hour just knocking that down, and we don't even have that much time left in this episode. So I just want to kind of circle back on that and say whether you're engaging in a meditation practice or a yoga practice, or a a mindfulness practice, or you're simply just trying to be grounded, whatever that looks like to you. Remember, as Lodro said, and there's ancient philosophy to back this up across the board. Even if you look at Christianity, or Islam, Judaism, Buddhism, it's, it's not the end, it's the journey, right? And it's about being the best person you can be on that journey. And sometimes that's the person who got mad. And you can observe that and sit with that and let that work on you without it being a flogging and without it being like, oh, my God, why am I not better? Why am I not? You know, being Christ-like doesn't mean 
being the guy that ultimately went up in the sky or being, you know, being a bodhisattva for those who are, you know, in the Buddhist tradition, having an awakened heart doesn't mean being Buddha. If you read, you know, books about them when they were little, I mean, there's a reason why you don't hear about Jesus in the middle years because he was figuring it out. <laughs> and there are some uncanonized gospels like the gospel according to Thomas, where you can hear about his follies and his learning. And you read, you know, just novels or, you know, canonized literature like Siddhartha by Herman Hesse. You can see that Siddhartha Gautama, he, he took a journey. He wasn't always the mad and light dude under the tree. So the journey is okay. The journey is important. And Lodra, you know, the work you're doing is so crazy, so, so amazing. And listen to what Lodra said. The dude has been meditating since he was six. And he still sometimes is like, okay, yeah, sometimes I, was, I wasn't mindful just then. Or I may not feel like meditating right now. That is so powerful to hear from someone who's been in it their whole life, right? So, Lodras, we're starting to put a bow on this thing, right? People are, have been listening. I'm sure they have pages of notes, you know. Um, if they're like, okay, all right, I like what Lodra's saying. I'm really, it's really resonating with me. I want to, you know, not be Lodro, but I want to, you know, maybe learn more from him or, or trying to emulate a little bit what he did, reverse, you know, engineer it. What is a piece of advice you would give them, you know, so they could win life in the same way that you are? Sure. Yeah, I mean, I think it is an interesting question of like, how do we, perhaps not necessarily strive for always being perfect, but how do we strive to be more of who we are? And I think meditation in particularly, there's this Tibetan term for uh, gom, G-O-M, which can be translated not just as meditation, but as become familiar with or familiarization. The idea that meditation is a way that we actually just become familiar with all of who we are, which is the beautiful parts and the ugly parts and the confusing parts, all of it. And the more we do that, I think the more at home we are with who we are. And I think that's one of the most beautiful things about meditation that we can just be okay with who we are um, and, and the more I teach and the more I uh, work with students one-on-one -on -one and things like that the more I realize a lot of us really spend a significant amount of time perpetuating our own mm. self-aggression and beating ourselves up and thinking we're not good enough and at least coming out of the Buddhist view and the view of meditation is that we actually start to learn that we have everything within us that we need so I do encourage anyone who's interested to pursue you know, the practices I often teach are shamatha, calm, abiding meditation, loving kindness practice. And those are very helpful for these. Yeah. And, and the great thing about what Lodra is recommending is it's not some. And I mean, in the ancient times, yes, it was some crazy tablet on the top of a mountain that you had to sojourn to get to read. But now the beautiful thing about this distracting technology is you can there's apps, Insight Timer. It's a great meditation app. There's um. What's the other one? If you go online on YouTube, you can Google loving kindness meditation and you can have someone guide you through that. And that, let me tell you, is a very powerful meditation right there. When you think about the people you love and you send them loving kindness, and you think about someone that you care about that's ill and you think about, you know, someone that's wronged you and you think about yourself. I mean, those moments, you can't predict how you're going to react and what those emotions are going to bring up. So, you know, what Lodro's saying, learn and practice how to be okay being yourself, man, information and, and powerful wisdom for any age, for any person at any stage in life, truly. So, Lodro, 
thank you so, so, so much for being on the show. If people want to connect you, if they want to find you, if they want to get your books, where can they do that? Yeah, I mean, the nice thing about having a weird name like Lodra Rinsler is that there you sort of get all the domain <laughs> names. So literally, L-O-D-R-O-R-I-N-Z-L-E-R at uh, .com on Instagram and Facebook and all of the things. And I try to make as many of my resources free uh, as possible. So um, anyone who would like to connect with me there or even just shoot me an email. I always respond to people personally by email. Wonderful. Wow. Wonderful. Well, again, yeah. thank you so much for being on. I hope you guys were listening. The great thing about this is if you missed anything, you can run it right back and listen to it again. Until next time, you guys get out there and win life.